Hello, it's uh, iBookBinding's podcast, uh, and uh, today our guest is uh, Peter Geraghty. Peter is a, a bookbinder and a bookbinding teacher from uh, uh, from around Boston, uh, Massachusetts, United States. Uh, hi, Peter. Hi, guys. And uh, uh, the other guy is my co-host, Pavel. He joins us uh, from Moscow. Hi. Um, so uh, I know something about uh, your your career and, and things about uh, uh, things you do, uh, and you've been my teacher for uh, some time at uh, uh, the American Academy of Bookbinding, and uh, you've been teacher to many other people as well. Uh, but first thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, uh, how did it happen so that you started making books? What what made you to you know to start this career? When I was in college um, in the late, in the early 70s, 71 to 75, I think it was, um, I was an art major and I was involved in printmaking. And um, I needed a job to uh, make a little extra money and got a job with a local print shop that was doing uh, offset lithography printing. Um, it was the first time I'd been involved in that kind of thing. And the guy that was running it, his impetus for having a business was that he wanted to be a millionaire, which is a, to me is a very odd reason to want to do something, but that was his drive. Um, he was a terrible boss. He sort of turned me loose on an offset press without giving me much instruction. And I proceeded to work on that, but I was only there for a week. I, um, I just couldn't stand the guy. I couldn't stand the place. And I never went back to pick up my paycheck for that one week. Shortly, shortly I, there- I, I, I had a similar experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where it was so bad that you just didn't want to stay put long enough to get paid. Yeah, I, I've been an apprentice at the, at a binary uh, for some time for 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 almost a month, and in the end, I just uh, you know left and <laughs> didn't that get my money. Yeah. So, um, but shortly thereafter, I heard about a company called Unicorn Press. They'd been in Santa Barbara, California, and they had moved to Greensboro, North Carolina, where I was in college, and. I heard that they were they were interested in having people help out. Mm -hmm. So I went by there and um, talked with uh, Alan Brilliant, who was the owner of the place. He and his wife, Tao Savory, were the, they were the, the publishers. And uh, a friend of mine worked there. So I went over and spoke with them. And they were happy to have me come and volunteer to work, which I did for the last, for the fall semester of 1974. And um, they had a Vandercook letterpress. So everything was letterpress printed. Um, the books were sewn by hand. Usually the books were just simple, single folio chapbooks. Uh -huh. There was much to them at all. 
Um, sometimes they were wrapped in paper. Sometimes they had a hard uh, case on them. So I learned to do uh, typesetting and printing. I also learned to do um, some bookbinding that was, uh, you know, very simple, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was interested in it and um, stayed there for about a year and a half um, after in, in 1975, in the beginning of 75, I was actually paid to work there, but it was um, subsistence wages. They had very little money. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't pay me much. I could barely keep you know, my apartment and my food, but I really enjoyed doing the work. Um, and as I'd been a printmaker in college, printing was not that dissimilar to what I was doing. Um, and then I decided to move to Boston. My brother was living up there. Um, we're from North Carolina. Uh -huh. So I decided to move up there. And um, I, when I got up there, I got a job as a superintendent in a condominium. So I didn't have to immediately um, have work because I had a place to live and I got a little bit of money. And I started taking classes at Harcourt Bindery, uh -huh. which was within easy walking distance of where I was living. And um, really enjoyed that. And then I got hired at uh, Harvard University in one of the libraries to just do some minor repair. Worked in the stacks, um, you know, just had minor equipment, um, and I wasn't doing a lot of stuff that required skill and knowledge so much. Um, but there was a woman working in one of the local libraries. Her name was Doris Freitag. And Doris um, had been trained in Germany um, before the war. Uh -huh. um, I'm not sure what her timing was, but she eventually ended up in the States and had been working at Harvard for quite a number of years yeah. and was a very skilled binder. And Dara started not teaching me directly, but she would help me when I got stuck with things. And I could always talk with her about issues I was having. Um, and uh, we became friends um, during the time I was there and afterward. Uh -huh. And I quit working at Harvard um, because I got a job with a small bindery in Cambridge that did handbook binding. Um, incidentally, the owner also made um, S&M gear, uh, which I was much less interested in. Um, but, you know, that's, he did that. He did that for the gay population in the area. And all I did was I worked on books. He worked on the S&M gear and everything was just fine. Um, and I worked there for about a year, but the owner wasn't able to teach me very much. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually I was able to get hired at Harcourt Bindery. So I left the uh, place in Cambridge and moved on to Harcourt. And I was at Harcourt for about four years. I came in sweeping the floors and 
making marbled end papers and that sort of stuff. And by the time I left four years later, I was the shop manager and I was doing all the leather binding. So it, it was a proper apprentice's uh, pass. Yeah, it's in as much as it could be. Um, I was taught what I needed to know to do the work. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, Sam Mellonport, who owned the bindery, he was he's was very concerned about getting the work out on time and you know without it costing a lot of money. There were things that we did that uh, one would call shortcuts. Um, they didn't, well, some of the work we did there didn't hold with my fantasy of what should be done. Um, mm -hmm. Sam and I got along very well. We had clashes from time to time because of some of those things, but you know, that we would work that out as we went along. Um, and I was really grateful for the opportunity to work there because to work for about four years, 40 hours a week, doing nothing but binding all day long um, and doing it quickly, that was a real education. And unfortunately, it's not an education that is offered to people nowadays. Um, I'm sorry that it's not because it's an extremely valuable um, skill or a place to learn your skills, even if you might want to work in a different manner. Um, but to learn to work in a particular way and to do it quickly and efficiently, um, that's something that just, that's the best education you could expect to get without working directly uh, with a master binder as an apprentice. I mean, and, and why can't you nowadays? There's just no uh, place for it economically. That's pretty much it. Um, there in the U.S., I would say there's probably about. I'm guessing at this. There's probably three or four binderies that still do some sort of handwork, but a lot of what there is in this country is mechanized. I don't know how it is in Europe or in the UK, um, but most of the binders in this country, they're like me, they're single people. Um, I do have two employees, which is a little more unusual. Um, a lot of the binders in this country, they just have one employee, uh, if that. Or even none, yeah. Yeah, just themselves uh, frequently. Um, when you've got employees, you can get, I mean, don't tell my employees this, but I pay them less than I pay myself. You know, so you can have um, more people working at a manageable wage and charging the money you need to charge to get the work done and therefore make some sort of a profit and keep a larger shop going, pay for the larger amount of overhead that you have. I mean, my shop is, Probably, um, I would guess it's one of the few largest shops in the country uh -huh. in terms of square footage. And as I say, in terms of employees, the same hand having a shop that size means you need to constantly be feeding work into the machine of the shop. You need to constantly find work 
that you can turn out. And you still have to be mindful of what you charge for the work. Um, over the years, I think I have charged too little and I've been remedying that. Um, frankly, I have to say partly my, the length of time I've been doing this um, and the number of people that know me means I can charge a bit more than someone who is a relative unknown just coming into the field. Um, so that's useful. Um, I was a relative unknown and it was hard to get enough money to uh, run the shop. Fortunately, I'm married to someone who had a regular paycheck. Um, this helps a lot. <laughs> it helps tremendously, it really does. Um, and I don't know how, I do know binders who are married to other artists. And frankly, I don't know how they do it um, because it's a huge amount of stress knowing where you're gonna get the mortgage from or a college education for your children, um, that sort of thing. So I find it hard to recommend this as a lifestyle and frankly, when I teach at the American Academy of Bookbinding, there is a small part of me that, um, you know, I don't, I feel a little bit bad teaching people to do what I do because of the fact it's going to lead to a hard life, but they thoroughly enjoy what they're doing, which I have been doing. So if it's something you thoroughly enjoy, you're just gonna to have to find a way to make it work which is what I've done. And people that have been in the field for a long time have also done, they've managed to, to keep it going um, no matter what. Uh, could you talk a bit about uh, looking for work? I mean, uh, you've been uh, uh, binding books uh, since well before either of us has been born. So in the era before internet, how do you look for orders when there's not enough, enough work? Right, yeah. Um, the, I have to say the internet has really helped. Um, and I don't do Facebook or any of that stuff, just my webpage um, has helped. But in prior times, um, it really is a lot about word of mouth. It was also about um, looking for um, publishers, uh, libraries, institutions, and calling people up, introducing yourself, maybe sending a letter, maybe arranging to drive to meet them. Um, but, you know, I'd say probably 75% of the work was through word of mouth. Um, also at the time I started, there weren't that many of us. If you wanted a book bound, you know, you could probably count on two hands or maybe four hands, people that you could get to do the work. You mean people, in, in, in the area or in the country? In the country, that might not be quite the right number, but it was a very small pool of binders. Um, so you could get the work that way. I think now, the, I mean, obviously the pool is large now of binders and the pool of good binders is large. And I love that. Um, 
when I introduce myself to people and tell them what I do, most of the time, you know, the first question is out of their, out of their mouth is, isn't that a dying art? Unfortunately, I can tell them, no, it is far from it. Um, but making a living is not easy. Um, well, I yeah, th definitely. It's not a dying art, but still it's, it's a hard business and maybe, maybe not a dying niche uh, for a business, but uh, uh, you need to try hard to make decent money. You do. And I think one of the things that um, I try to do is to create a shop that's more like a value added type of situation. Um, you can bind very plain books by hand, at which point you're looking in terms of um, numbers, like you'd have to do hundreds and hundreds at a lower price uh -huh. to make enough money to get by on. Uh, when we start looking at some of the work that we've done here in the shop, you'll see that we tend not to bind books in, um, in that sort of plain manner. And we don't, we don't bind them quickly and cheaply. Um, that also means that the person you're binding them for has to sell them for some real money also. So it, well, or, or, or they have to be a collector or something like that, or an institution. Exactly. And there are collectors we do work for who will pay um, what's necessary um, to get the job done. Um, but it is hard to meet those people. I think even with the internet, it still doesn't hurt, um, you know, going around and contacting people. One of the largest clients that we have had, um, I got a postcard from them, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I'm not sure when, uh -huh. advertising the kinds of books they did. So I did email them. I didn't send their letter, but I did email them, letting them know we were here and saying, if you ever need a binder who can, you know, do interesting things with the books, let us know. Um, that led to a relationship that started about 15 years ago. And even though they are no, it's 21st editions, even though they are no longer doing books per se, we're now doing furniture with them, um, boxes that um, really are you know, quite special boxes. Um, so, you know, still reaching out to people. I wouldn't necessarily sit back hoping stuff comes to you. Um, I think you do have to make concerted efforts mm -hmm. uh, to reach people. And in terms of artistic freedom of, in, uh, in terms of choices, what to do, uh, who do you prefer to work for? For institutions, for publishers, or with uh, clients and collectors uh, directly? Where is, uh, where is there more of a dialogue between you and the client? That's something that grows. Um, I think when you're doing fine bindings or design bindings, 
um, the uh, clients coming to you because they've already seen your work. They sort of know how you work. Uh, there's, there are a number of fine binders. So if they don't like your work, they'll go talk to somebody else. So you can sort of make the assumption if they're coming to you, they're also coming in part because they want what you can do as opposed to what somebody else. It's not a question of quality. It's a question of style and artistic um, input. Um, I am fine with clients who come to me, like we've worked with publishers that come to us and present the design they want to use. I'm fine with that because we are a job shop as much as we are any other kind of shop, as long as they allow us to do as good of a job as we can do, I'm fine to do their designs. Um, 21st editions, when we first started working with them, they had certain ideas in mind, but the first edition I did for them, I was able to talk them into letting me um, do the design for that binding. And up until that point, binders they had been using, who were all very fine binders, just had not really offered them these kinds of options. You know, now it's become a thing with uh, 21st where it's a dialogue back and forth. And yeah. that happens with a lot of other, um, a lot of other clients as well. But there's still- And, and still not, not, every, uh, not every fine binder, not every binder is a design binder. It's, it's, uh, it's a bit of step for, for, for a book binder to uh, start making design. I, I'm not a design binder. I, I can do, I don't know, leather binding, fine binding, but uh, I, I'm not a designer and uh, uh, it's, it's always been hard for me to move, uh, move forward to, to do something like that. And uh, so it's well, not- Stephane, You bring up an interesting thing about binding because I never saw myself, like early on in, in my career, when I was at Harcourt, um, and I was doing a lot of other work. I did um, start to get involved in um, exhibitions that the Guild of Book Workers was having. Um, there was somebody that had me, uh, a dealer who had me do some designs on bindings. And um, I did some, but then when the 80s, you know, midway through the 1980s, the market collapsed and um, even some of the finest design binders, at least in this country, were having trouble getting work. Uh, the financial um, aspect of the country was really bad. And so that dried up and I stopped doing them. I didn't think of myself necessarily as a design binder. Um, and I have no training in design, even though I did work in printmaking. So I sort of thought of myself more as a job binder, but I've discovered over the years that you can train yourself in design. Um, and I think that's what some of us don't realize. Um, and it doesn't hurt if you can speak with somebody who does know design. Uh -huh. uh, 
a city like Don Glaster at the American Academy of Bookbinding, um, people like him, um, you know, you can, if you can talk with people like that, if you can look critically at the kinds of work other binders are turning out, I think you can start to understand what they're doing and you can, you can branch out beyond your own abilities. Now, some of us may never be really great design binders. I'm content if that's what, is, what my life is like, but I haven't gotten back to design binding in probably 20 years uh -huh. because I've been too busy trying to keep the shop moving. If I ever retire, I intend on doing that, but uh, we'll see if I get a chance to retire or not. You returned to uh, 80s for a moment, and I, I also wanted to uh, ask another question about uh, 17th and, and 80s. Uh, you told about this experience of uh, being an apprentice uh, and uh, studying uh, bookbinding in an efficient way, but uh, uh, what were the options for, for a person uh, who, who wanted to study bookbinding in that era? Because uh, Nowadays, uh, you have uh, some specialized schools like uh, American Academy of Bookbinding or North, North Bennett Street School. Uh, mm -hmm. You have some uh, uh, sections or faculties at uh, different universities all over the country, in the United States, I mean, because in, in different countries, the options are different. But uh, what were the options then? You're right. None of those places existed. They all have happened since then. Mm -hmm. So... Um, what you could do, there were a few bindaries like Harcourt um, that were still up and around. And those places, if you could get a job there, you could learn. There are still, you know, some of these bindaries, as I said earlier, do some handwork, not as much as they used to. Um, and you know, you can go there and at least work with your hands all day long. But back then, there were a few more binders like that. There also were um, some older individual binders that you might be able to latch on to. But I'm not aware of any of them doing any official sort of apprenticeship. We were back in the 60s and in the 70s, and I came into this in the 70s, the arts and crafts movement was really starting to take hold in this country. Um, probably elsewhere, I'm just not aware of the other areas. But um, people were starting to do a lot more woodworking, pottery, weaving. In fact, I initially wanted to be a woodworker. Um, and you can see where I got now. I also wanted to be a potter. I didn't manage either of those. But um, there still were not a lot of places you could go, but there weren't a lot of us looking for it. And we shared a lot. Um, like at Harcourt, um, you know, the people that were working there, um, Dan Kelm, Carl Eberth, Joe Newman, uh, Martina McCulka, um, all of these people, we shared everything that we knew. Um, Edwin Heim, who was director of uh, Ascona uh, after uh, Hugo Peller, he came over to the States 
um, I don't remember when, but I had moved to East Hampton at that time where I am now. And um, he came and met a lot of the binders here because there are a lot of binders in this area. There were even more earlier on. And um, he was surprised at how we shared information amongst ourselves, where in Europe, at that time anyway, people tended to be very private about what they knew. That's what I wanted to, to comment on, because uh, I had a, I had an, uh, a discussion uh, with, uh, with a colleague of mine from, uh, from Romania, from Bucharest, uh, Mihai Vertejaru. And uh, he told me that uh, initially when he decided uh, to go for an apprenticeship in bookbinding, uh, he, he was taught by a master bookbinder uh, in Bucharest. And uh, uh, even during the process, he started to understand that uh, some things are not right. He, yeah. isn't, he isn't taught proper way. And especially after he moved on to, uh, to work as a, as, a, as a professional bookbinder, he found out how many things he was taught wrongly. And his understanding was that uh, his master was protecting his secrets. And for me, this, this approach is just absolutely insane because, uh, well, I can understand why master would like to protect his or her secrets, but it's just counterproductive. And uh, you are teaching your apprentice who helps you uh, do your job and you are teaching them wrong. And, uh, it's just all over, it's all, all over wrong, so. Well, um, I was just um, emailing with a, a student from AAB this morning who was having issues with gilding. And um, I mentioned in the email how um, back in the 17th, 18th, possibly into the 19th century, I'm not so clear on that, uh, gilding, edge gilding was done by people who were trained as edge guilders. And they, they were part of a guild yeah. uh, in some parts of, in the UK and in some parts of Europe. I don't know the full um, history of that, but because of the guild, they kept their secrets yeah. um, so that they could not be usurped by people who would charge less. I think that same attitude sort of fell down from that time to, um, you know, right up to not that long ago. Yeah. I think it's, you know, people like yourselves, um, people like me who come from that um, arts and crafts movement, um, we weren't happy with that and started challenging it. And I think that's a, that's a lot less the case now. Um, you know, I don't know anybody who keeps secrets from anyone else. Um, it's how we all learn, um, you know, cause you can always improve, you know, I'm not yeah, the best exactly. in the world. I never will be the best binder in the world, you know, but I can improve. Everybody can. So I think sharing information is the key, which is what I like about teaching. As far as I understand, uh, it's, it's also a sort of, uh, it's a bit in French tradition of bookbinding when you have uh, a separate, uh, separate master, separate professional for every step of binding. 
and yes. uh, they're very strict about uh, uh, keeping this order and uh, uh, you really wouldn't know other uh, uh, elements of the process uh, you are sp you're specialized in in uh, in something uh, in a single process and then you just uh, wouldn't share your secrets with anybody because uh, because they will take your job away from you right right well, what watch trade used to be like that until comparatively recently. What trade? Um, uh, watch trade. Okay. Like uh, they, uh, a, fa a family used to make only one small part of the mechanism. Um, oh. uh, so imagine that, like like a hundred families making a single watch, but the color. But the result was uh, that uh, the techniques improved so uh, so fast. Because if you concentrate on one small part, you can make it more precisely, you can make it smaller, you can make it faster. So there are pros and cons. There, there are. I mean, when you look at uh, 19th century sort of Victorian leather bindings, um, they're nearly perfect um, because one person did the sewing, one person did the gilding, one person did all the leather work, one person did all the tooling, and then another person would put up the end sheets and do whatever finishing to the book was necessary. Um, you know, books that were so cleanly done you could eat off of them. And then that's what, it's one of the issues that I face personally, it's also, I think one of the issues we may all face is that we look at that perfection and execution and think, why can't I do that? Well, that's the reason you can't do that. Um, there are some binders who can do that. Um, there's no doubt about that. The majority of us do something that is maybe a notch or two less in those Victorian bindings. And the Victorian bindings had issues with uh, longevity. Part of the reason the tooling is so crisp and beautiful in them is because the leather is paired so thin. Yeah. Um, when you sink a tool into a piece of leather that has some depth to it, you, it's not as easy to get such a crisp, beautiful, um, tooling on that, yeah. but then the boards will break off over time, or the cords will get fans so thin when they're laced in. Um, you know, there's just, there are problems with it. So I'm sure that you can strike a beautiful intermediary spot between that and something with longevity. And I don't mind if the hand shows in the book. I don't mind if there's evidence of this thing being done by hand. Not that I want it dirty and well done, but. Gold tooling is uh, definitely one of the processes that takes a lot of time to, to master and to, to, you know, to, to keep it uh, in working uh, order because it's like, like being a musician because you need to train all the time and you need to uh, keep your skills uh, in, in uh, well-oiled. Right, right, yes. And do you uh, uh, make your books all by yourself? Do you still, uh, are you still active in all, in, uh, uh, in all the stages? You saw, you tool, you, wo 
work with leather? Yes, um, I do. As I said earlier, I have um, uh, some employees. They're, they work about two thirds or three quarters of the week. Um, they're not in the shop today. In fact, since the pandemic, they really haven't been in the shop. They have their own shops in the same building, which is ideal because I can hand them work. They go off to their shop, do it, bring it back, and we go um, on like that. So I don't necessarily do every bit of a book. I don't sew that much anymore. Um, there's other things I need to do. I do all of the leather work. I do all of the gilding and I do all of the tooling. But then we don't turn out a lot of books with gilding and tooling. We may turn out a lot of leather books um, and some of them may have aspects of that. I did um, an edition of 40, actually in the end it was 42 cloth bound books that I just finished that had full gilt edges. So that was over 120 edges that I had to do. Um, you know, and you can get to be halfway decent when you're doing that kind of work. It was also the paper on those edges was problematic. It was paper for inkjet printing and it's kind of soft and pulpy. Yeah. So trying to get a good edge on that was not easy. And the first books I did were not as good as the last ones I did because I kept learning and improving ways to address that kind of paper. Um, so it was a good process to learn. So I can do all of those things, but you know, because I'm spread thin, I'm not a great tooler. I'm not a great gilder. Um, I'm pretty good with leather, but you know, it's, it's rare that you get to do all of that stuff and do it well. Uh, that was a good segue, uh, your experience with, uh, with this uh, inkjet paper to uh, another thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, we just uh, uh, recorded a podcast with Brenda Galher, uh, one of uh, your students and, and colleagues as well. And uh, um, uh, we discussed that Bookbinder uh, constantly learns new things and uh, uh, finds new tricks and uh, uh, gets new ideas on how to better or differently do something. Uh, so uh, besides this experience with inkjet paper, uh, what were your recent uh, you know, uh, findings and new things you, uh, uh, you know, you, this eureka moments uh, uh, in book binding? Um, it's hard to, to give anything specific about that right now. I would have to say that dealing with the inkjet papers did give me um, a lot more information about just gilding in general. Yeah. Um, it made me further aware of um, the differences in the papers that you have to deal with. For instance, I'm um, doing uh, some gilding right now on a new Bible. Uh -huh. Print, you know, it was printed on India paper. It's, the, it's a typical Bible. It had a machine gilt edge when it was sent to me, but the owner 
wanted uh, what they call a red under edge. Uh-huh. It was a hand gilt edge, but a red background to it. Um, and I've actually found it particularly hard to get a really beautiful edge on it. The red under is not a problem. The paper is so hard that any wrinkle in the leaf when you lay it down will show. Mm-hmm. When I was doing the um, inkjet paper, the wrinkles wouldn't show. Yeah. Um, so I was going between a really hard paper and a really soft paper. And that's one of the things that we have to face nowadays is that papers are sort of all over the map now. We're not working on uh, books with nice, well-sized handmade papers that often. So um, it, uh, you know, it, we, we're just faced with such a broad variety. Um, I would say though that the Eureka moments come not as big things with the heavens breaking open and you know rays of sun shooting through. It's more like you when you're doing a lot of one process at a time, um, you make minor adjustments in how you do the process. If you do just one book, you can't appreciate this. Uh-huh. When you're doing hundreds of books, you appreciate how just simply where you stack the books. Um, like I'm, I'm working with another binder in this building right now, and you'll see evidence of this when we start looking around the shop. We're doing a three volume set of a collection of art books uh-huh. and there is there there are 52 sets so there's 120 regular bindings uh-huh. there's 36 and the regular bindings are half going to be half leather then there's 36 that are going to be full leather uh-huh. each individual book is getting its own slipcase. The half leather bindings are going to get half leather slipcases. The full leather bindings are going to get full leather slipcases. And the books, they're, oh, what I think they're like about 32 centimeters tall and they're around 25 centimeters wide. And they're, oh, they're like four and a half, five centimeters thick. So yeah. they're good size. It's going to take the other binder, Mark Tomlinson, has his own shop, but and he works by himself. So there's he, there's myself, and my two employees, and the four of us are going to spend six months doing this um, book, um, these books. So I'm in the process of punching the holes. Uh-huh. Well, I have a hole punching gadget. Yeah, I start with the. Um, stack of pages on the left side of the hole punch. And as I punch them, I move them to the right side. And that's sort of the way I've always been doing it. I was doing this yesterday and I realized if I had the stack that I'm punching the holes in on the left side and the stack I'm punch- I have punched 
on the left side. It means I am just moving from the left to the machine back to the left instead of going left machine right. It's these tiny little um, changes in how you operate can be key things, key insights, not only about speeding it up, but in how you turn an end cap, how you form a leather corner, um, just things like this. It's, you want to go at your work. I hate the word mindful because it's become such a cliche, <laughs> but you need to pay attention to what you're doing. And if somebody tells you to do it this way, thank them very nice, try it that way. Even when I'm teaching at AAB, I make my students aware that the way I am teaching them is a way on the to ways. yeah. But it is not the only way. Um, yeah. So you take what you learn. First, you should do it that way because you need to get it into your bones and into your brain and your hands. Um, but then start to question it. Um, talk to other binders, see what you can come up with on your own, see what you can learn from other binders. And by and large, most binders nowadays are more than willing to share what they know. Yeah, that's true. And uh, it's also true that uh, not only speed is important, speed is often important for uh, large projects like you described, but uh, uh, lowering the margin of error is also very important. Uh, Fewer errors you make, uh, uh, less time you spend on uh, fixing these errors afterwards. <laughs> so it's, it's, and, and, and standardized routines and routines that are comfortable for you and uh, logical for you are very important in, in lowering this number of errors. Because if something is not working for you, you will make a mistake. Yes, yes. Well, and you bring up an interesting point about errors. Errors, obviously they're to be avoided, but you can learn so much from an error. When I was working at Harcourt, every once in a while, the person doing the gold tooling, they might make a mistake and misspell um, something in the title, or they might burn one of the center tools, putting it into a panel. Well, at Harcourt, the way we would often do the tooling there is that um, we do what they call a panel in centers, which means you've got a, a rectilinear gold line defining each panel of the spine and you have a center tool in it. So I got to be pretty good at taking my knife and incising out alongside the tooled gold line and removing that panel, replacing the panel and feathering the edge so that I could give it back to the finisher. And that person could retool the gold lines and then put the new center tool or the new titling in there. And sometimes you couldn't even tell a change was ever made, but you'd get to be skilled at using your tools and knowing the materials, knowing how far you can push them before there's an issue. Um, 
that kind of thing. So there's a lot you can learn from making mistakes. Not that I advocate making them. This, this reminds me of, uh, uh, of one of the experiences I had with uh, Don Glaser while uh, studying at the AAB uh, uh, on his course so on, on fine mm -hmm. binding. So when I was making one of the uh, leather bindings uh, and while, while I was pairing the leather, I made a cut exactly at the same level so that so when, when turned in, this cut landed on the edge of the cardboard. Yes. And uh, yeah, I was upset and uh, leather is expensive, especially when, when you are a young student and uh, time, time also is not, not expensive, but it's time and you don't want to spend a lot of time preparing leather once again. And Don came to me and he was like, okay, I don't know if, if we can fix it, but we will try. <laughs> and we found a way, we, 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 we uh, slapped a piece of blue tape over this <laughs> cut and I turned it in. And now, nowadays, I, I still have this book and, uh, because I, I gave it to my wife and uh, well, she has this book. Uh, nowadays, I cannot find where, where this uh, uh, cut is because it was <laughs> fixed right. properly. Right. And, well, and, and as, as Don said, I don't know if we can fix this, but that's... I have to say that for me, the most exciting thing about doing what I do is trying to figure this stuff out. And it's not just figuring out mistakes. Um, as you'll see with some of the work we've done here, figuring out how to create the effect we want um, requires a lot of head scratching, uh, experimentation and stuff like that. But it's that kind of thing that enables somebody with as much experience as Don or myself has of coming to you when you've got that problem and being able to quickly calculate in their head a very plausible way of dealing with it. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what you get from doing the work is you get that, um, you just get that um, backlog of knowledge um, and even if you don't know how to do something, you can pretty well formulate a fairly decent way that it might work. You talk a lot about uh, uh, techniques, about mastering techniques and knowing a material, uh, specifically leather, I assume in your case. But uh, so much of modern bookbinding is about using new materials and combining materials in novel ways. I know there has always been so, uh, something like that in design bindings. You can find uh, uh, late 19th century bindings using eggshell inlays, say, or something, uh, uh, something exotic. But Overall, I'd say that it, it's mostly in post-war and even maybe late 20th century bookbinding that you get proliferation of new materials. What was your experience with that? Um, I like new materials. Um, I don't use a lot of different things. I may use metal. Um, I use magnets. I use plastic. Um, you know, things like that. Um, uh, in, in the shop, we have decorated um, silk, for instance, to use 
as a binding. We've decorated paper um, plenty of times to use as a binding. Um, there are other people who get more into exotics um, and I'd call them exotics just because they don't fit into traditional binding per se. Um, but uh, if, I found, if I found that there was a material that fit what I wanted to do and it wasn't a binding material, I'd just figure out how to use it um, is what it comes down to. Um, and I mean, you know, you'll also come up against a time when, all right, maybe I can't figure it out. Um, in which case, okay, I have to change my idea about what I wanted. Um, but boy, you push the edge as far as you can until the rubber band breaks, um, trying to figure out how you're gonna do it. Um, and there's plenty of nice materials out there to explore with. So, you know, I, I think people should really do that um, as, I mean, don't, don't do it to be novel. Do it because it fits with what you're trying to say with what you're doing. Uh, I can't stand it when people do things because they can do it. I prefer to do it because it's the appropriate thing for the direction they're going with the design or the type of binding. And Lord knows when you're doing, um, when you've got a publisher bringing something to you, you're gonna be faced sometimes with materials or techniques that you haven't had to deal with. And they haven't necessarily thought through themselves, but by the time it comes to you, it could be a little too late to say, well, that's not gonna work. So then it falls to you to figure out how to make it work. Well, when we discussed uh, how Amer uh, American and European tra uh, traditions uh, used to be different in that American tradition was much more open. And uh, in, in nowadays when uh, everyone is, uh, knows everyone, when we can talk to you and I'm in Moscow, Stepan is in Amsterdam and you're in Boston. Pretty I neat. Mean, is, is there even such a thing as uh, American tradition, European tradition, French tradition, uh, uh, I mean, as an alive entity, not as sterilization doing like they used to, but is there still uh, original variations in your craft? I think that's a really good question, Pavel. Um, and it's something I have thought about a lot. Um, I think those differences are certainly breaking down. Um, there's a lot going on across the ocean back and forth um, with people exchanging ideas and binders starting to write books and put out videos uh, about how they do things. I mean, YouTube University is probably the biggest teacher in the world on bookbinding right now. Um, and, you know, some of it's dreck, but some of it is quite useful and informative. Um, it doesn't seem to me to be um, such a big difference. Um, you know, at the risk of um, saying something that is improper, I tend to think that some of the French binders might still hold to what we were talking about earlier, where 
maybe there is one person who is pairing the leather uh, where the binder has forwarded the book, they may still get the leather paired. They may still get the edges gilt. They'll put the leather on themselves, but they may still have another person doing the tooling. Um, I don't know how true that is nowadays. My sense is that in the UK and in the United States, it's pretty much the same. I don't know much about German binders. Uh, you know, you guys are the only two Russians I know, so there you go. Um, but um, I think that is breaking down. I do, I do enjoy seeing the kind of pairing knife that a binder will use because it's going to be an English knife, which is sometimes referred to as a German knife, mm -hmm. or it's going to be a Swiss or a French knife. And those two get screwed up. Usually the, the, you know, the, the German or the English knife have a bevel. A true German knife, uh, you can actually flex the blade when you put it down, you can literally flex the blade and the blade tends to be uh, semi-hemispherical, semi-rounded, where the English knife is stiff and has a angled blade. Uh -huh. And the Swiss and the French both have rounded edges, but the French usually has a wooden handle attached to it. Uh -huh. And Swiss is usually just a flat piece of steel. Uh -huh. But you'll see books giving different names to these. Um, and I'm not the expert, so who knows? My names may be screwed up too. But um, it's just fun to, when you meet a binder for the first time and you see the knife they use, you have somewhat of a sense of what their background might be like, where, you know, where they may have learned what they know at that point. Um, I was trained in an English shop at Harcourt. Harcourt was based on English style. So uh, I use the English um, slash German style knife, but I also have the Swiss knife and I like that a lot too. So there's much less of a difference now, that's for sure. And it's also great when uh, people d decide not to limit themselves by these borders because, okay, I'm following the British tradition. I will use only the English knife and nothing else. Uh, that's, that's, that's well, for somebody maybe it works, but uh, when you allow yourself to, to step out of your comfort zone and try something different, try something new, you may find out that uh, there are so many beautiful things around you. Oh, yeah. Well, um... In um, teaching, and I know we're going to get onto that in a second, but the way I learned, and this is sort of what I try to impart to students, is that I got a smattering of teaching by going to every single workshop I could find. Uh, I was—I actually lived two hours west of Boston. Uh -huh. I used to live in Boston, especially when I was at Harcourt. And every time, uh, you know, Bernard Middleton, Tina Muir, Philip Smith, uh, Ola Olson, these people would come through and I would take their classes, um, you know, and try and learn as much as I could, even though they were doing things differently than I was learning. So I really 
tried to get a broad amount of knowledge. But then once I had that, I tried to bring it back into a tighter grouping of techniques that I could master myself. Once I got those techniques fairly well understood, then I would go back out onto the branches of the tree again and start looking for little things that I could add to what I was doing or maybe ways I could change what I was doing. But I found it, um, first it was just, there was an overload of information coming in. Uh And so I had to pull that into a tighter thing so I could focus and learn. But then when you've got that, you can go back out and get all this other neat stuff out there and meet other people and learn ways they do things and alter what you do and just have this nice back and forth um, with other binders and sometimes with other craftspeople who are not binders um, to learn stuff. So yeah, I'm glad the barriers are disappearing. Uh, so uh, that's that's it for uh, this time. Um, as usual, uh, we are very grateful to our, all our uh, viewers. We will be uh, happy to see some comments below this video. Uh, special thanks uh, to our uh, patrons on Patreon. Uh, thanks to your money, uh, we are able to edit uh, our podcasts and uh, uh, make more of them. Uh, we appreciate uh, your support quite a lot. And uh, if any of our viewers would like to join uh, the crowd of our supporters on uh, Patreon, uh, you can just uh, use the link below. Uh, pledges start with only $1 or one euro per month. And uh, with uh, levels higher than three euros or $3 per month, you get uh, some additional stuff uh, like digitized uh, books about book arts. If you like this video, please like it, uh, follow us on YouTube, uh, maybe check uh, our Etsy store and our blog. There is also a newsletter on our website, so a lot of uh, stuff to follow and to read. And uh, thanks again for watching. See you next time.